So ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Welcome to the Wellness Cast. I'm Joe Bankman, professor at Stanford Law School and also psychologist. My partner in these podcasts is Sarah Weinstein, lawyer turned therapist and external director of the Wellness Project here. Our guest today is Dr. Norris Simpson, a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford and the associate director of the Stanford Sleep, Health and Insomnia Program. So the subject today is sleep. You know, Sarah, sleep is one of the most common problems I see in my practice. Clients are anxious, they have trouble sleeping. Clients are depressed, they have trouble sleeping, and so on. Yes, I see the same thing in my clients, and it affects their lives in so many ways, from affect, regulation, inability to tolerate frustration, exhaustion, obviously, and it's a huge issue for lawyers. Yeah, so so a problem can cause a sleep problem, but then the sleep problem can make that problem a lot worse. Right, exactly. It's, everything's worse when you're tired. I guess that's why sleep deprivation was uh, used as a torture technique at various points. Yeah, exactly. My eight-year-old uses that technique on me still. <laughs> you know, my favorite study on this is a study of depressed Uh, patients, people with depression, and one group got the gold standard in talk therapy for depression, and the other group got the gold standard in sleep therapy. And it turned out that both groups were less depressed, but actually the group that got the sleep therapy improved more, not only in sleep, but in depression as well. Wow, that is so interesting. I'm thinking in the legal profession of the very high rates of depression and anxiety. So lawyers should listen to that and stop pulling those all-nighters and get some sleep. I'm with you. And with that, uh, I want to welcome our guest today, uh, uh, Dr. Simpson. Welcome to the Wellness Cast. Thanks. I'm happy to be here today. Hi, Dr. Simpson. I, too, want to welcome you, and thank you for being here today. So before we get into the very important issue of sleep, one of our other goals for the podcast is to normalize the difficult emotions we all experience. And to make that real, we'd like to begin by asking our guests to share a hard moment. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, what comes to mind for me as a, as a hard moment occurred when I was in graduate school. Um, so when you attend a research-based graduate program in psychology, um, deciding where you want to attend is really all about or really heavily weighted on the graduate mentor who you'll be working with. So I had done a lot of research into the programs I wanted to apply to and picked out a couple of mentors who were at different universities across the country um, and in the end selected um, the person that I wanted to work with at the University of Pennsylvania. and had been in that program for two years when he scheduled a meeting with me and told me he would be leaving the university and that the long and short of it, he recommended that I stay in the graduate program without him. 
Oh, that sounds like what every graduate student fears, and to have to sit with so much uncertainty at that stage of the program. What did you do? Turns out that um, there was a very well-known sleep researcher who had been willing to talk to me and help me look at his research through, in some ways, a lens of my own interests. And we decided that we could work together. And this was a big shift for me because my initial research interests weren't even in the area of sleep. And while I was a little bit uncertain at first, um, over time, and giving myself the option to be really interested, I found that sleep was really a wonderful area to be focused on and clearly have continued my work in that area to date. Well, we're glad you did, uh, Dr. Simpson. And with that, uh, that hard moment, I want to jump into sleep and give you maybe the most common thing I see as a therapist. Someone comes in and they're a little bit on the anxious side. And one of their big problems is every night they lie awake, they try to get to bed by maybe 11 because they always feel a little tired. They report racing thoughts. They're always worried about what's gonna happen tomorrow or rethinking what happened today. And they can't get to sleep. And then it gets to 12 and then it gets to one. And sooner or later, they're not only worried about work, they're worried about what happens because they can't sleep tonight. And this goes on year after year for them. So how do you see a case like this? Well, it really is a, a common and, and very frustrating problem. Um, and from a 10,000 foot perspective, I think it's important to try to really use your daytime period to work on and organize and at the end of the day disconnect from your worries and stressors so that you can leave as much as possible the nighttime period or your goal sleep period free to fall asleep and have a restful period so different people can approach that in different ways, but one thing that is generally helpful for most people is to try to plan in a bit of a buffer zone or wind down period before bed that gives you some time and space to let go of those daytime worries before you'd like to be going to sleep. Another thing which is a broad approach but can be quite helpful is to really think about differentiating between daytime and nighttime. So what I mean by that is a lot of us have some low-lying stressors or things that might be on our minds that we may not necessarily want to or have time to think about during the day, but that when we lie down at the beginning of the night and relax and let go of some of our kind of professional busyness start to crop up and kind of circulate in our brain and can keep us awake. And it can be really helpful to start a practice where you spend 10 or 15 minutes a day just checking in with yourself and doing some of that personal maintenance thinking, reflecting, processing during the day so that it's easier to let go of those thoughts when they 
emerge at night. So I, I know that sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy is used um, for a long-standing insomnia. And can you just maybe differentiate a little bit between someone who has a more acute episode of stress, maybe middle of the night waking, and someone with a more long-standing problem and how someone would know if they needed treatment versus just this wind down period? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I'm happy that you've asked because it it is important to realize that most people will have some transient sleep disruption during a period of increased stress. And that's something that at least to a large extent is, is normal and not something that we would consider an insomnia disorder. However, if the period of sleep disruption continues and becomes more chronic or is so significant that it's very distressing to the person or really impacts daytime functioning, then it might make sense to be evaluated by a healthcare professional for insomnia disorder and to consider engaging in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which really is the first line treatment for insomnia at the present time. And what does that mean, cognitive behavioral therapy? Can you give us a a capsule of that? Absolutely. So cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or CBTI, as we like to shorten things, um, it's a short-term skills-based treatment um, that focuses on retraining sleep patterns that become dysregulated when insomnia is present and additionally teaches the individual a set of skills to help you quiet your mind to allow sleep to unfold more naturally, more consistently, and for longer durations of time. One of the things I heard you say is retrain your body. Mm-hmm. What would that do? That's maybe if you have a more serious problem, but how do I retrain my body here? So when someone has um, difficulty falling or staying asleep on a regular basis, there's something interfering with your ability to fall asleep, but you also are starting a conditioned pattern where night after night after night, you're getting into bed and struggling to fall asleep. So there's a lot of conditioning that's happening during that period as well. So over time, your body, instead of being in a state where you expect to be able to fall asleep when you get into bed, you may dread getting into bed or feel sleepy on the couch when you're watching television and then by the time you lie into bed, you feel wide awake. And that's because of the conditioned element of sleep and insomnia that is something that we really work on retraining when the person is in CBTI. So this has to do with falling asleep quickly and on a consistent basis and also maintaining a regular wake time in the morning. So how, how would you retrain me? Suppose I say, I have a lot of trouble falling asleep. I have to take a nap in the day. I get to bed and 
All of a sudden, I have racing thoughts. I'm not really tired, but I stay in bed because I know I need sleep. So how, when you hear that, what kind of retraining are you thinking? <laughs> so first of all, I think, please schedule an appointment and come in to see me because we can <laughs> help you with this, right? So I think you described a really common set of very distressing symptom. And one thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is that this is a treatable disorder. So if this is your experience, I certainly would encourage you to seek treatment because it's very likely that we can help you let go of all these distressing experiences. Um, but back to your specific sleep pattern, um, two things that stick out for me. One is that you talk about trying to sleep when you're not feeling even tired or sleepy. And that is one of the biggest mistakes that people can make. Sleep is not something that you can work at or try harder or force to make happen. In fact, that almost always backfires and the more you try to sleep, the harder it gets to fall asleep. So the first thing that I would have you do is if you're not feeling very sleepy to stop trying to sleep, as paradoxical as that sounds. The wow. other thing that I would suggest that you do is to avoid taking naps during the day. You really want to save up that sleep drive or sleep need for the nighttime period. That's really when you'd like to be sleeping. And if you spend some of your sleep need or your sleep drive during the afternoon, you have less of it to apply to the sleep period at night. So let's think about another common problem faced by lawyers, and that is travel. Many people are being asked to go to multiple time zones in any given month. Right. So this is a really challenging and particularly in this area, a very common situation to be facing. And the hard truth of it is that there is, at this time at least, no way to really fully erase the effects of jet lag or difficulty with traveling to time zones and needing to perform at peak functioning the next day. Um, but there are certainly strategies that you can use to help speed your transitions to new time zones or to buffer the impact of um, needing to, for example, fly to um, a time zone that might be 10 hours earlier or later and then be able to work the next day or two after you arrive. Um, one of the strategies is to use a um, a jet lag travel planner and there are several available online that can help you start to shift your sleep-wake schedule a few days before you leave or help you speed your transition when you land um, based on your own habitual sleep patterns and the time zone to which you're traveling. Um, there are many available um, one that I use is Jetlag Rooster. There's another program called Entrain. And these can help you plan your schedule to minimize the impact of jet lag and can help you, if you'd like, also bring in tools like melatonin and light exposure that can help you speed your transition to a new time zone. Uh, what about medication for this type for international travel? Do you recommend that or does that make it harder to recover or how, what are the effects of using medication for that? You know, medication is certainly a personal choice. And if you're someone who uses medication, using it on a short term basis, for example, for travel, for a conference, maybe the best way to do so. 
a couple of kind of caveats to that though. One is that if you try to take a sleep medication on a plane and then you can't sleep, sometimes people then feel fuzzy or uncomfortable when they're on their plane and they're awake and they're having the effects of the sleep medication already physiologically in their body. So in some ways that can be less desirable. The other thing to keep in mind is that one of the ways that you can really minimize the impact of international travel on your mind and body is to use your time on the plane wisely. So many people try to kind of burn up as much of the time on the plane sleeping as possible. Being on planes is boring, you're cramped, you're less comfortable. And so many people do is what I call sleep to escape and to try to sleep as much as they can on the plane. Um, and for that purpose, that may be a totally reasonable approach, but it can get you into trouble if you are, for example, landing in the evening in the arrival time zone and are expecting yourself to get off the plane, you know, maybe grab a quick bite to eat, transition to the hotel, and then get a full night of sleep. If you've just slept for the last 10 hours on an airplane, it's not really reasonable to expect your body to be awake for three or four hours and then get another full night of sleep. You know, a lot of people, uh, uh, Dr. Simpson, are probably listening to this and thinking, what about meds in general? I know you're a psychologist, I'm a psychologist. We can't prescribe meds. And your treatments are non-med based. Uh -huh. How about Ambien and Trazodone and Melatonin and the meds people are taking? What's mm -hmm. your position on them? Um, you know, I think it, again, it comes down to personal choice if you decide that you are interested in taking a medication or not. I do think that these medications are best used on a short-term basis if they're used at all. Um, I don't think that there is a significant concern with using a sleep medication for a couple of days in a row every once in a while. But what we find is that long-term medication use has some risks and consequences. Medications can become less effective. You may need more of them. You may get stuck in a pattern where you become psychologically dependent on taking a medication and feel like you need it to be able to sleep well. And there are some risks with long-term sleep medication use. They're associated in large epidemiological studies with increased fall risks in older adults. If you track studies out very far, there's an increase in mortality risk with chronic sleep medication use. Um, and I think all of these factors combined have led to a number of healthcare and medical associations putting out position statements that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is in fact the first line treatment for insomnia. It doesn't have any of the risks that sleep medications would and in head-to-head -head trials, it works as well as prescription medications in the short run and tends to have stronger and more durable effects when tracked out for long-term follow-up. Even as long as three years out, people who have had cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia tend to sleep better than those who have not or who have had sleep medication. 
So, uh, so another another question, and it's a problem I'm I'm curious about for myself, and I, I know others might be too. And I've read conflicting reports about it. What effect does looking at a screen, either a laptop or a smartphone, have on sleep? I, I noticed that on nights I work late at my computer, I have more trouble falling asleep, and just the overall quality of my sleep seems lower. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that that's a. That's an increasingly important issue for many of us. Um, the light that's emitted from laptops and these personal devices tends to be very heavy in the blue light spectrum, which is a um, particularly alerting spectrum of light for our eyes and our brains. And so it can certainly have a negative effect on our ability to fall asleep and to stay asleep. There have been several studies in this area that have shown in sort of these studies that are really carefully controlled but designed to study the potentially maximum negative impact of these devices that they can delay and reduce the total amount of melatonin that our brains release over the course of the night. And melatonin is um, an important sleep promoting agent that our bodies make. So particularly if you're a night owl, being on a screen and being exposed to that blue light at night can really have a negative impact on the quantity and the quality of your sleep. I will say too that I think blue light and blue light exposure from devices I think might um, get a little more blame than it deserves in the grand scheme of things. And that's because I think that there are a lot of other ways that being on those devices at night and in the evening can also impact our sleep. If you are up and you're working, you're thinking, you're concentrating until soon before bed, that's really preventing your body from having that wind down period, that chance to downregulate before you try to initiate sleep. Even if you're not doing something that's particularly unpleasant, let's say you're not working, but you're surfing the web, you're spending time online for the hour or two before bed, you may be feeling like this is helping you unwind and disconnect more easily. But you have to keep in mind that the designers of those web pages and programs and video feeds are designed to keep you engaged. Right. Their goal is to have you spend as much time on those sites as possible. So there are other kind of polls for continued engagement on those screens and portals that can lead you to spend more time than you might otherwise want online, make it difficult or more difficult to transition into wind down time and bed. I mean, I think all of us have gotten caught you know, saying, oh, I'm just going to check email or check this one thing or look at my Facebook feed for five minutes. And then, you know, 45 or an hour minutes late, an hour later, you look up and you say, wow, where did the time go? And I think that's a real additional risk of using this type of personal device at night. You know, uh, we like to sign off, Dr. Simpson, by asking our guests about a wellness practice to thrive in your own life and career. But it turns out that you've already named one that our previous guest, uh, sociologist Christine Carter, urged us to give a try to, which is get off the computer, stop checking email constantly. Sarah, did, 
Did you give that a try? And if so, how did that work for you? Well, I did give it a try. I was actually traveling out of the country for a couple of weeks and I decided not to bring my phone with me or a computer. And so I, it was kind of an unintentional try. But um, I, it, I realized that I can actually check email once a day or honestly once a week, but I don't really have a job that's very email dependent. So I think, you know, it worked very well for me and I really enjoyed being unplugged, but I'm, I'm not, you know, I really don't know how that would be if I had a different kind of a career. How about you? Did you try it? Uh, no, I didn't because I'm, I'm kind of connected to email. So I tried to do it a little less. Some of our listeners out there are, uh, chained to their email, maybe by a little bit of their job, they're, they're expected to look at it all the time. And I think that builds a little bit of a different habit. How about the other thing uh, uh, Christine Carter recommended, which was smiling at people in the day, uh, including if you go out to get a coffee, smile at the barista, maybe exchange a word or two. Did you try that, Sarah? I tend to do that a little bit. I'm trying to do it a little bit more. And it was actually funny. The day we recorded the podcast with um, Christine, I went to the bank and the teller was asking me a lot of questions and typically, you know, personal questions. How are, how was I? And typically I kind of give very short answers and try to cut off the conversation for various reasons. But that day I opened myself up a little bit more and I ended up having a very nice conversation and learning quite a bit about the teller and she was lovely. And it, it I was, gave it a lot of thought. It actually added quite a nice element to my afternoon. So uh, how about you? Tell us about your conversations with strangers this month. Well, I'm in Greece right now, so my conversations are limited by a language issue. But I tell you, I've had some great smiles. <laughs> that's that's great. So, so Nora, do you do you have a favorite wellness practice, whether sleep related or otherwise, that you use to thrive in what I'm sure is a busy life and career? I think the one thing that I do really make an effort to do on a regular basis and just find it really important is having some dedicated what I like to call downtime. So I really like to spend uh, a couple of hours an evening or two a week with my family or my husband if it's later um, just being totally unplugged enjoying time could be watching a TV show could be chatting where really the goal is as odd as it sounds to be doing nothing productive yeah i think it's something we kind of all have in the back of our minds that oh rest is important but i think to actually explicitly state it and like you just have and to make it a part of your schedule is just wonderful probably helps quite a bit certainly enjoyable too so i want to thank you Dr. Simpson, for being with us. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here and to help spread the word about good sleep and how if you're not getting good sleep, you may be able to change that. Yes, thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Simpson. As always, if anyone would like to access any of the resources from the podcast, including how to find Dr. Nora Simpson at the Sleep Clinic at Stanford, please see our website at www.law.stanford.com. Project. Thanks so much for listening and please tune in again next time for another episode of the Wellness Cast. <laughs>